This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. A little bit about the history of uh, SFGH. It has always been a leader in teaching, research, and uh, trauma care. Ever since it was founded in 1849, it has had a mandate uh, for indigent care, uh, developed one of the earliest emergency medical systems in the country in 1873, began its association with UCSF in 1904, was one of the very first trauma centers designated in the country by American College of Surgeons in 1972. It was actually the founding site of the Orthopedic Trauma Association in 1985. And the reason for this, uh, in part, was uh, San Francisco's uh, illustrious history in the 1960s, as well as a lot of the um, social unrest and uh, protests and violence that went along with that. And as you can see, that um, as the um, as the years quickly went by, we had a significant uptick, about a tripling in the number of trauma uh, procedures as well as general surgical admissions at the hospital. And part of that uh, was due to a regionalization of trauma care. So rather than everybody going every place in the city or in the region, they would all be collected to a specialty hospital such as San Francisco General. And it was during this time period that the concept of trauma centers was developed. So in 1971, they went from a, a total medical staff of seven and a half surgeons for, um, for managing trauma, including only one orthopedic surgeon. By 1976, when the um, building that we all know as the general was first opened, they uh, increased to 21, and it is uh, well over 100 people today. The Orthopedic Trauma Association is a professional organization of orthopedic surgeons uh, specializing on uh, fracture care. Um, and that was initially founded in a restaurant that sadly just closed this last year, a Vietnamese restaurant on Petrero Avenue, directly across from the hospital uh, beginning in 1977. And uh, as the uh, Orthopedic Trauma Center Study Group, followed by the Orthopedic Trauma Hospital Association, and ultimately the OTA in 1985. Our organization as it stands, the Orthopedic Trauma Institute, was founded in February 2009, so next year will be our 10th anniversary. Um, we manage all clinical subspecialties of uh, orthopedics, uh, pre predominantly in trauma. Also have uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, podiatry, as well as a very robust orthotics and prosthetics uh, department. Uh, we are world leaders in student, resident, and, and fellow training. We have an annual orthopedic trauma course, as well as a uh, significant uh, uh, simulation and cadaver lab on site. Um, research is also incredibly strong in our organization. Um, we uh, are the home of the Laboratory for Skeletal Regeneration, of which uh, Ralph is the um, uh, director of that. We also have a biomechanical testing facility, clinical research center, and uh, procedure-based research. And we do a significant amount of global outreach, which you may have heard of as well. And again, this is sort of the reach of some of the things that we do is mending the injured based out of the hospital, inspiring innovators, empowering leaders worldwide. San Francisco General is the only level one trauma center um, in the city of San Francisco, and it can, uh, provides trauma care for basically all of San Francisco as well as the northern portion of San Mateo County, basically down to the level of the airport. And we have a service area of 1.5 million uh, people. We presently have 13 full-time orthopedic 
uh, faculty, including 10 uh, trauma-trained, fellowship-trained uh, orthopedic surgeons, which is one of the largest groups in the world, uh, two full-time podiatrists, three full-time physiatrists or PMR specialists, and we have four full-time research uh, people. We currently train two orthopedic trauma fellows, which go off to uh, be leaders in other academic centers around the country. And about 40% of the uh, UCSF orthopedic residency trains with us at any given time, uh, as well as numerous students uh, internationally. Here's a quick list of our clinical faculty, as well as our part-time faculty. And we provide orthopedic trauma and fracture care services uh, in addition to Zuckerberg um, San Francisco General Hospital to the uh, UCSF Parnassus campus here as well as the uh, regional hospital of San Jose. Uh, our webpage, social media, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, videos and um, educational uh, opportunities is there well. Our education, um, we have one of the largest independent uh, training centers with uh, three uh, surgical stations that are fully stocked with uh, fluoroscopy, which is x-ray machines that we use, as well as all the surgical equipment and power tools necessary for uh, practically any uh, orthopedic specialty, fully integrated audiovisual capabilities. And since we opened in 2007, we've had over 800 courses and 10,000 attendees that have attended um, and trained with us. Um, we do surgical skills training here for our residents and medical students, uh, as well as technique-based research. Also have a microsurgical facility uh, for uh, vascular flaps and things like that. And then we also have a significant number of our national associations come and host courses here as well. Just last month, we hosted the 13th annual San Francisco Orthopedic Trauma Course, which had an international faculty of 54 people, greater than 500 attendees, which makes it the largest independent uh, trauma course in the, in the country. Um, as well as a nursing course. As I mentioned, we have significant um, uh, breadth of uh, research facilities as well, including the Laboratory for Skeletal Regeneration, our Biomechanical Testing Facility, Clinical Research Center, and our Surgical Training Facility for Procedure-Based Research. We have 18 total uh, investigators, including uh, Dr. Marcuccio, who is here with us, six PhDs, four doctors, and numerous staff, and have been incredibly productive uh, with uh, NIH and uh, other um, uh, grant-sponsored uh, research. The biomechanical testing facility basically uh, looks at the mechanics of bone healing as well as numerous implants and things like that, and we have hired professional engineers, interns, and students to do that. We also support the UCSF residency program in it, and it interfaces with our surgical training facility. We also have over 25 ongoing fracture-related projects in our clinical research center. We're a core center for the Department of uh, Defense grant, which is a $72 million clinical research study. Basically, it is um, looking at high-energy uh, civilian injuries and in the application that can be used in uh, treating our, uh, our soldiers. Um, and we also have uh, multiple uh, multi-center uh, studies that are being done independent of this as well. Probably one of the things that we're most proud of is our outreach programs. Uh, we are the home to uh, multiple volunteer initiatives, including orthopedics overseas. Uh, we work with the Oberlin Dance Collective, the ODC Theater, 
uh, host a dance medicine clinic uh, for um, uh, dance artists around the city that otherwise don't have access to easy care. Work with the uh, uh, San Francisco Mounted Sheriffs and also have uh, multiple other local outreach programs. IGOT, which is the Institute for Global Orthopedics and Traumatology, uh, was founded by us and uh, has been dedicated to improving the health care um, and decrease the burden of uh, fractures in underserved populations throughout the world. And basically what we have done is numerous programs to enable local surgeons to provide better care and teach better care to their medical students and residents uh, throughout the world. And so far, these are the countries that we have been able to uh, reach out to and uh, serve in that. So this is a brief introduction of our hospital and uh, some of our programs. We'll move on with the, uh, with the actual meat of our conference uh, today. This topic is injury and aging. Do fractures in the elderly heal differently? And the part that I'm going to talk about tonight is, are there differences seen clinically? And this is a huge issue for our population. Um, there are over one and a half million osteoporotic fractures in the U.S. each year. Over 90% of women over age 75 have uh, clinically diagnosed osteoporosis. This can lead to over 300,000 hospitalizations per year. And that has a very big impact. These fractures ultimately have, on average, about a 25% one-year mortality. In addition to that, 25% of patients require nursing home placement. And about half of patients over the age of 65 that have such a fracture lose independence as a result of their, of their injury. So this is something that's important to all of us and is becoming a huge personal and a societal problem for us. And the reason for this is uh, the wave of uh, patients in the baby boomer ages. So if you look from 2008, the youngest baby boomers on the uh, left column of the bar here, there we go, there's our mouse, and the um, oldest at the right. And this is superimposed over a graph of the actual fracture rate uh, that happens with age. And you can see there's a very high uptick in vertebral, hip, and wrist fractures uh, as people age. And as we move toward the 2030, and we're in the midst of this right now, we can see that we have this huge tsunami of patients just going through um, what's, what still is the beginning or early stages of uh, these very common osteoporotic fractures. And so this is becoming a major shift in the types of fractures we see, the types of patients that we have to treat, and the degree of um, expertise that we need to manage these very well. And one of the call to arms uh, that was made uh, several years ago now um, regarding osteoporotic fractures was that appropriate evaluation and treatment of low energy fragility fractures is generally the exception and not the rule. That we weren't managing this very well or in a scientific or systemic way and we've really come in the last 10 years um, to improve this significantly. But the impact as I mentioned is very high. So um, there's up to a 50% risk reduction if we um, start treating patients after they have their first fracture, which we call a sentinel fracture. However, only 20% of patients that have had a fragility fracture ever receive treatment for osteoporosis. So even though this is a very successful treatment, we're doing a very poor job as a medical profession 
in identifying and getting people the care and follow-up and support that they require. So let's look at the definition of osteoporosis. It is low bone mass with a microarchitectural deterioration resulting in microfractures. We'll take a look at this, and the picture says a thousand words as far as what the bone quality actually looks like. But people actually have their peak bone mass acquired by about age 30, and it slowly decreases after that. It's multifactorial. A significant proportion of it's resulted by uh, hormonal changes, predominantly estrogen withdrawal in postmenopausal women. The clinical presentation is fractured following minor trauma, as well as a low bone mineral density. The definition by the World Health Organization, and we'll give you a quick uh, primer on, uh, on DEXA scans and bone density testing, um, but the, the normal is within one standard deviation of, from peak bone mass. So basically, reasonably close to age 30 quality bone, Osteopenia, which is this intermediate phase of loss of bone density, is between one and two and a half times, uh, two and a half standard deviations below that, and osteoporosis is less than 2.5 times. We'll talk much more about this later, and these numbers will start to make sense as we go through this. So the risk factors uh, for osteoporosis are age, obviously older people, women, early menopause, low body weight, smoking, use of alcohol, steroids, low-protein diet, and anticonvulsant medications can also have a significant impact. I pulled this old Virginia Slims ad because, you know, you have the, the thin, supposedly athletic, smoking white woman, and this is the person that is our probably highest population risk person. So you look at the radiographic appearance and you look at the pathology of it, you have normal bone on the top and osteoporotic bone on the bottom. And the bone is still there, and it effectively is no normal bone, but as you can see, it is just much more thin and much more brittle. We have thin cortices of bone, which is the harder outer shell of bone, and a loss of the trabecular bone, which is the spongy bone on the inside. And then you also have a loss of continuity. So where we see right here, these are these microfractures I was talking about. You have these thin spindles of bone holding it together, and a lot of times these will just very easily crack and when they do crack and when they do repair, they repair as just poorer quality bone, not the very hard, solid bone up above. So the diagnosis and treatment, obviously, as you can imagine, prevention is the single most important thing. Attainment of bone mats begins basically when we're young adults and goes downhill from there. We really want to prevent the postmenopausal resorption and age-related bone loss. So things that we can do are calcium and vitamin D, which I'll talk about significantly tonight, uh, the use of bisphosphonates or medications like uh, Fosamax, and there's other different medications such as calcitonin, parathyroid hormone, and other estrogen receptor modulators that can uh, help as well. When we had talked about future fracture risk, we talked about if somebody has a first-time fracture, they have a significant increased risk of having a second fracture. This also plays into bone density, and I really would highly recommend getting a bone density scan um, if you haven't. How many people here have gotten one? So really a reasonable number, and the thing that I would also say, too, is for the men in here, it's also important to get it because it's, even though we have less of a problem with osteoporosis, it is something that is really not screened for, and the undiagnosed 
rate of uh, osteoporosis in men is very, very high. So if you had a previous fracture and you have normal bone density, you have twice the risk of having another fracture. It might be due to clumsiness, due to other circumstances, um, things such as that. However, it's four times as much if you have this intermediate osteopenic um, bone density, but eight times as much if you're clinically diagnosed with osteoporosis. And then if you've had a a prior vertebral fracture, you have a five times greater chance of getting another one, and then you also have a double the chance of getting a hip fracture. As you can imagine, not only are these painful, but they have significant implications on your quality of life afterwards. And, you know, the issues with osteoporosis is really about the quality of the bone. We talked about the integrity, about the remodeling, um, the ability of the bone to absorb a fall and injury as well, too. And as you can imagine, the uh, osteoporotic bone on the right really is incredibly brittle and will just crush rather than uh, having any absorptive properties whatsoever. So the diagnosis of this is with a DEXA scan is the, is the best way that we have for, to test bone mineral density. It's recommended for any men over 70, women greater than age 65 or less than 65 if you have any multiple risk fractures. If you've had a history of a fragility fracture, which is basically a fracture that results from a fall from a standing height or less. So anything that results from a low-energy fall where you don't catch yourself or get bruised or things like that but actually fracture a bone, that really is considered a fragility fracture. And then if you have any sort of bone-losing medical treatment, such as chronic use of steroids, uh, patients that are on dialysis, as I mentioned, certain anticonvulsants also have a significant impact on your bone density. So the DEXA scan is currently the gold standard for bone mineral density assessment. You saw the machine in the back. It's actually incredibly low-dose radiation. It's less than a chest X-ray. And you'll end up with a report that looks like this. It has a, a, num- a bunch of data, some graphs looking at the density, and things as that. The number that you really want to look at is your T-score. There's two numbers that are there. There's a T-score and a Z-score. So T, think of the true bone density. And it compares the density relative to the peak bone mass of a healthy 25-year-old person. The Z-score is really used for certain subgroups of people. And you can feel really good about yourself and say, well, my bone is better than the average 95-year-old. But that doesn't say a whole lot. So really, the T-score is the one that you really want to use. And they typically look at multiple locations, including the wrist, low back, hip, and heel. Certainly, if you've had surgery, such as a spinal fusion, Uh, hip replacement or something like that, they will look at at the other sites. And and typically they want to use the worst of those numbers that are available. So you may have very good bone density in the hips or in the low spine, potentially because of arthritis, which will create a local increase in density. But they want to look and try to get the normal or the, the most normal or most representative bone. So this information can also be used into a tool. Um, The World Health Organization developed an online tool called the FRAX, which is basically a risk of fracture calculation. And it can be helpful to decide if treatment is necessary. If people have not fractured yet, as I mentioned, if you have fractured, you should start treatment. Um, And if you've not been on any prior uh, medical treatment, such as bisphosphonate or something like that. And it really accounts for numerous risk fractures. Um, And you can actually look this up yourself. Um, You can Google FRAX, F-R-A-X, and it will um, come up. And what you will get is a 
calculation tool that looks like this, and you can basically plug the numbers in. You put in your weight, whether it's in uh, pounds or kilos, your height to get an es essence of your um, body mass index, and then you can look at these different um, uh, metrics that really kind of make sense. So have you had a previous fracture? Have you had a parent that's fractured a hip? Are you a smoker? Do you take uh, glucocorticoids, which are medications such as uh, prednisone or other steroid medications? And do you have a history of arthritis? Um, do you have a history of uh, what's called secondary osteoporosis or uh, osteoporosis due to a metabolic condition or medication that you take? And do you take more than three drinks a day? And then you put in your DEXA score from your hip, and it will actually give you a percentage risk of having a major fracture based off of all this information. And it's been proven over and over again to be reasonably accurate. So if, if you want to not sleep well tonight, uh, feel free to take a look at this. And then just cover yourself with pillows and don't, uh, don't move. Um, so we've determined that we have osteoporosis, and what do we do to initiate treatment? So one of the first things to do is activity modification, which really is no fun. Uh, so avoid tobacco, limit alcohol, uh, prescribe muscle exercises for strengthening and balance, and uh, there are numerous falls prevention programs that can be, uh, can be done and uh, are, have been shown to be very helpful uh, to either set up your home or, um, or improve your own uh, balance and coordination to be able to do that. Exercise has been shown to be incredibly useful to improve bone density. Never has the phrase use it or lose it been more true uh, than in this case. So weight-bearing exercise, especially when you're younger in life, to build up that initial bone stock is very important. So kids and young adults, it's very important. And in older adults, too, it helps decrease um, the rate of bone loss because you're basically putting a force across the bone. It's stimulating the bones to actually maintain uh, a, a certain amount of strength. Tai Chi has been an exercise that has been demonstrated scientifically to improve strength and balance, also shows to help in fall prevention and coordination in elderly patients, and it's something that is very highly recommended. It's low impact um, and has uh, significant improvements in upper and lower body uh, bone density by doing this. For people that are doing exercise, one of the things that's, uh, that's helpful uh, some guidelines that might seem somewhat counterintuitive, but we'll, we'll talk about it. It's really that you don't want to do any crunches or sit-ups. There's other ways that you can do abdominal and core strengthening. But the concern is that if you are osteoporotic, that if you're basically using your spine as a fulcrum, you can actually increase the risk of getting a vertebral fracture by doing that. Similarly, overhead lifting that can, can really uh, put a significant force across your lumbar spine or other extension-type exercises. You want to always bend at the hip you know, sort of like a drinking bird rather than bending sort of through the waist and through your low back. Low weight, high repetition is incredibly useful. So less than 10 pounds to be carried out by the hand, 25 pounds close to the chest, and then smooth gliding exercises with smooth rather than jerky motions is, is very helpful. And it's also very reasonable for any people that have arthritis that you don't want to get into a pounding uh, motion that could aggravate any other problems. So looking at diet, um, I should have put a little X through that, too, because that's all the stuff that we shouldn't eat. But uh, I haven't had dinner yet, so that's looking really good. Um, 
you know, so you really have to remember that as we metabolize calcium, the bone is the first source of calcium. Your body will basically leach calcium out of the bone to get the calcium that is needed. And so you have to make up for that with your dietary requirements. Um, most Americans are significantly short on their calcium intake by about 500 milligrams a day, as well as uh, short on vitamin D. And there's a couple of interesting things with that. So if you look at the daily calcium requirements and how you can develop a calcium uh, deficit over your lifetime is very important. So a young child needs 700 milligrams. An adult needs about 1,000. A pregnant woman needs about 1,500. And many women don't increase their calcium intake to make up for pregnancy and the development of the baby. And so as a result, you lose bone with childbirth. Lactation even more in uh, nursing. Postmenopausal women is also this very high rate. And then people that are sustaining a major fracture that they have to repair also is a time of significant increased calcium metabolism. And if you take a look at that, the amount of calcium that you need to take by dietary causes is really hard to get. I mean, that would, you know, so if you need 1,500 milligrams, that's five, you know, five glasses of milk or more than a quart of milk a day. Um, a significant amount of, of any of these things um, is, is really not going to get you there. So calcium supplementation is very important. There's a number of different ones that are easy to take. Calcium carbonate has the highest concentration of calcium. It needs to have an acid environment to dissolve. So you need to be very careful in people that are older because you might actually have a decreased absorption of that within your gut normally. And anybody that takes any sort of acid, antacid, acid blocker, uh, such as Prevacid or Zantac or something like that, really does not get any benefit from calcium carbonate. Calcium citrate, however, is something that dissolves in the absence of acid. However, you do get a slight increased risk of uh, kidney stones, so something to be aware of. But if you do take a, um, an H2 blocker for your stomach uh, or for any sort of reflux, you do need to take the proper sort of calcium for that. So... Some interesting things about vitamin D, aside from um, the, the role it plays in bone uh, metabolism and calcium absorption metabolism, is it plays to, appears to play a very significant role in disease susceptibility. Low calcium, uh, sorry, low vitamin D has been associated with breast and prostate cancer, sarcoidosis, inflammatory bowel disease, various lymphoproliferative disorders, and even MS. It also has a significant role in the body's ability to fight disease and um, as well as um, uh, basically the um, management of, uh, of um, antibacterial uh, surveillance. You need sun exposure uh, to um, metabolize vitamin D and to process it adequately, which means 20 minutes to the hands and face daily. So take a look at this, however. SPF 8 sunscreen, which basically is suntan lotion, not even real sunscreen. I, I slather SPF 50 on my kids practically every day um, when they go out and play. Blocks 95% of vitamin D production. And then basically seasonal effects and where we live. So anybody that lives north of Atlanta, including us, does not get enough sunlight six months of the year to uh, produce vitamin D. So we all have a significant lack of vitamin D. 
Uh, skin pigmentation also has a significant impact as, as well. But the amount, if you think that we're covering up with hats, with, with our fear of uh, skin cancers, things like that, we are really hurting ourselves down the road as far as our bone density. So when we take a look at vitamin D, we look at what's called 25-hydroxylase um, vitamin D levels, which is the best indicator of our nutritional status. So we basically look at 25 vitamin D, and that is what's necessary to convert to the metabolically active form, which is 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. About 85% of it is metabolized outside of the kidney in different places, including, most importantly, the skeletal system, but you also see it within the nervous system and immune system as well. So when we get those numbers back, um, you need to have a level of 32 nanograms or greater to have normal vitamin D levels. And you get incredibly low, less than 15. Uh, you can develop rickets or osteomalacia, and you can certainly get into metabolic issues such as a secondary hyperparathyroidism. Basically, your body is working overtime to try to produce and have enough calcium that's available uh, to uh, metabolize and use for normal function. But multiple symptoms uh, can occur due to long-term insufficiency, including muscle weakness, balance difficulties, osteoporosis, and as well as immune system res response. And you can imagine all of these also play into people getting an osteoporotic fracture. If you have weak muscles, poor balance, and poor bone quality, your risk of falling and getting a fracture is much, much higher. So I mentioned your normal range is between 32 and 100, looking at the uh, labs that you get here, and that's really considered to be adequate. Um, Vitamin D is actually very safe. There's some word out there, and it's theoretically possible to overdose on vitamin D. However, the doses you'd have to take are so super physiologic that it's really impossible. There's really um, no signs of toxicity at even very high serum levels. And there's some people that are sitting out in the sun all, all the time that have a normal level up in the 200s. So there are numerous ways that you can take it. As we mentioned, uh, vitamin D2 or D3 that you can get at the pharmacy. And um, you know, certainly talk to your uh, doctor as far as uh, what the best way is. Vitamin D3 is really readily available. It has, takes a long time to build up in the system, but has a good long-term stability. So you do need to take it regularly over several months. Uh, vitamin D2 could give you a quick boost, uh, especially if you're in a very low state. Um, but then uh, has a decreased absorption over time. So if people have a very low vitamin D serum level, we'll start them on D2 and then switch them to D3 over time or start both at the same time. So you do want to start with 1,000 or two to 2,000 units per day, continue your current calcium and vitamins, and really uh, have a, treat, a, course, a course of treatment for at least six months to catch up. And this is really important uh, for long-term uh, maintenance. And um, certainly with uh, people that have had fractures, we really uh, treat with very high levels, again, of D2, which is the quick pick-me-up uh, for vitamin D, uh, once a week, twice a week if it's very low, and then sometimes we'll even give a large dose three times a week for several months, and then we will start with a standard uh, uh, daily dose of vitamin D3 as well. 
So there's other medications as well, including bisphosphonates, which we'll talk about a little bit down the, down the road. Um, basically, they work by poisoning osteoclasts, which are the small cells in our bones that tear away bone and allow the osteoblasts, which are the cells that build bone, to sort of catch up and, and build uh, stronger bone. There are some problems. I'll talk a little bit later about uh, these, what's called an atypical femoral fracture, uh, which is a stress fracture of the femur that can be an uh, increasingly common side effect of of this. There's also medications you've probably heard of, such as Forteo, which is actually a parathyroid hormone, as well as Prolia, which is actually an antibody uh, that prevents osteoclast formation rather than poisoning the osteoclasts that are there. So these are second and third line medications that are sort of beyond our scope of talking about tonight, but are worth knowing about as treatment options for people to, to take. So let's talk about a few different fractures real quick in the last few minutes and then we can move on to Ralph's portion of the talk, and I definitely want to leave some time for, um, uh, for some discussion. So vertebral compression uh, fractures are increasing. Uh, they occur in about 20% of people over age 70. Most can be treated non-operatively uh, and respond well to bracing. They can require open surgical treatment uh, if there's an associated kyphosis or a scoliosis that's, de that's deforming. So kyphosis is like a hunchback deformity. Or if the fracture causes any sort of nerve impingement or damage. However, this is because of the poor bone quality. You can see that in the CT scan. There's not much quality to purchase there. And we can certainly see the squished down vertebrae right in this area, really requires a pretty significant surgery to be able to stabilize this as opposed to a younger patient. There's also a procedure called vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty. So the vertebroplasty, basically a, through a tiny incision, through a needle in the back, cement is injected to actually decrease pain and stabilize the fracture. So there is no effort to really re- build or enlarge the vertebrae or correct that collapse, so basically just to, to cement it in place and glue it in place, and that's been very good for pain management. Kyphoplasty actually uses a small balloon to sort of reinflate and puff up the uh, uh, crushed vertebra that is in there, and then basically try to get about half the height uh, restored of the normal uh, vertebra, and, uh, and then inject that with cement. So there's a significant improvement in pain. We're certainly not doing anything to benefit the strength or integrity of the spine itself, and you certainly have to be careful of certain fractures with that, but it is a very popular treatment. Let's talk a little bit about proximal femur fractures. In 1935, it was described as the unsolved fracture because it has such poor uh, results and creates so much confusion, and that continues to be a problem today. So as we talked about before, this is a significant problem. Hip fractures occur about 700,000 cases per year in the United States. One-year mortality is roughly 20 to 25%. And a very small percentage occur in young patients, but typically in very high-energy accidents, such as a car, motorcycle accident, or big fall. And really what we need to do is fix it in a way that allows people to get up and walk and prevent complications are really important for the outcome. There's two main flavors of these fractures. One is called a trochanteric fracture or an intertrochanteric fracture, which is basically at the, at the angle of the hip in this area right here. The femoral head or the hip joint itself is really preserved and it's doing okay. And the other is a femoral neck fracture, which is basically in this area where the bone, basically the ball breaks off of the rest of the femur. 
This is incredibly susceptible to complications because this has a very, very poor blood supply. And if it breaks in this area, because there's no muscle or other attachments to it, because it is within the hip joint, uh, there's a high rate of the, either the fracture not healing or the femoral head, the ball itself, dying. So the problem with this is that there's no blood clot or callus that's formed for normal bone healing. There's bad blood supply, relatively bad bone quality, and there's really not much bone to get into for us to fix it well. Whereas an intertrochanteric fracture has significant better bone quality in the area. It has muscle and uh, tendons and capsule that are attached to it, so it provides an ongoing blood supply to allow it to heal. And we, we have a very good, reliable way to fix those. So when we look at patients and how to fix them, and the decisions that we always come to as far as how to fix these fractures, we really want to provide the patient with a serviceable hip for the rest of their life. So young patients, we want to make every effort to save the hip because it will last longer than any implant we have. If somebody is older and high function, we tend to favor a total hip replacement. And if they're uh, lower function, then we might do something that's in between, uh, which I'll talk about briefly. So any time that we have a long-standing 30-plus years, we want to make every effort to save the hip, and we will do what's called an open reduction internal fixation to conserve the hip because it's, it has a better lifespan. Um, in older patients, because of the poor bone quality and our desire to immediately mobilize and, uh, and do a once-and-done surgery as opposed to have the risk of a second or third surgery down the road, a total joint replacement or an arthroplasty is generally considered the best choice. We also have to look at how much surgery the patient can tolerate, um, whether or not things can be made better to, to fight again another day and do a bigger surgery down the road, which is sometimes the case if somebody's in a car accident or other serious injury like that. And then we really need to figure it out for each patient. Non-operative patient does not work. And unless a person is already basically on hospice care, uh, we really do not recommend it. There's up to a 90% one-year mortality, and the complications such as uh, pneumonia, bed sores, things like that is incredibly high. Internal fixation, we mentioned, is uh, what we do in, in younger patients, and we either use multiple screws, uh, which is on the, um, on the left image right here, or what's called a sliding hip screw, which is this larger implant here. They're all done through still pretty small incisions on the outside portion of the hip um, to uh, make sure that the uh, fracture is stabilized and held well. However, when we do this, we typically have to keep the patient off of the hip to allow it to heal without sort of collapsing or causing other problems. There certainly are some technical issues related to that, which is uh, getting a bit past uh, what we um, have time to talk about tonight. Uh, a hemiarthroplasty is what's called a partial hip replacement. And basically what we're doing is putting this metal stem in that goes inside the, the uh, proximal femur, kind of like tree roots, and this is the only part that is basically coming out. So we basically take out the fractured portion of the hip, and we put in this steel ball, effectively, that goes into the person's own hip socket. It's very reliable. These are typically either cemented or pressed into place. They're basically squeezed into the bone and hold there, but allows for the patient to be up and walking and fully mobile the day after surgery. It's a little bit more blood loss and, and uh, operative time, but there's a very low reoperation rate of about 5%. In recent years, when I trained in residency about 15 to 20 years ago now, 
um, total hip replacements really weren't being done. But over the last 10 years have been shown to be a significant benefit to doing hip replacements in active people. So people that have prior, prior uh, pre-standing arthritis prior to their fracture, they would benefit would have benefited from hip replacement anyways. They do very well with a hip replacement for these. There's a little bit higher complication rate than when it's done for arthritis, but it is very successful and very cost effective. And the thought is that it provides the best opportunity for care without a need way down the road, 10 to 15 years, um, to have to go back and, uh, and do a uh, conversion of that partial hip replacement into a total hip replacement. So really, most patients that are in the community uh, that are highly active and independent would most likely get a, uh, a hip replacement uh, for a femoral neck fracture. The intertrochanteric fractures, uh, again, have a very high mortality. Patients aren't able to get up and function and have uh, be painless, so we, again, highly recommend this. There's a couple of different ways that we can uh, treat this, including, again, with a total hip replacement, very rarely. But there's a lot of different choices. And you hear people talk about putting a nail, which is the implant on the right, versus a, a sliding hip screw, which is the implant on the left. And effectively, those um, do uh, work very well together. They are very commonly used, have very good results, and in most cases, patients end up doing uh, very well, especially if it's chosen for the right fracture. Now, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about bisphosphonate fractures. And these started after people started taking medications um, uh, like Fosamax um, several years later. Um, we started to see the very first results of reports of what was called an atypical femur fracture. And basically what you see is patients have a history of minimal trauma, and they have this unique fracture sort of right here in the, in the more proximal part or the, or the, the uh, higher part of the femur. And you see what's called a cortical beaking, beaking and thickening. And it's basically a stress fracture. And this was first reported in um, nine women over the age of five years. And this has become a very common problem. We're actually probably seeing this on a weekly basis um, at this time with uh, women that have been on Fosamax uh, or medication such as that for a longer period of time, generally around 10 years or so. So the risk of fracture increases with treatment. So if people have been on it for two years, the risk of this type of fracture is only two in 100,000 patients being treated. So very low risk. But it goes up significantly. By eight years, it has been shown to be in 78 per 100,000, but also very low. And people got very concerned about this. And I, I remember hearing about a year or two ago on NPR, you know, a big, big story came out about the risk to this and how concerning it was. However, the risk of getting a hip fracture is 1,000 per 100,000 if you're untreated. So even though this drug does cause this fracture to occur sometimes, the risk of getting the fracture is still by orders of magnitude decreased compared to untreated. This is what they typically look like. Um, they are kind of painful, but they sort of have this, this uh, very similar experience. Um, they show this cortical thickening. There's this very transverse or straight across pattern. And it's usually in this sort of top one third of the femur itself. And you always have this very similar spike on the inside portion of it. And it's a very clean break because there's basically a little stress fracture that occurs 
right across this area, and then it's sort of like a, a perforation in your paper towel, and the bone just kind of cracks with that. Higher risk with Asian patients. There's a high risk of this being bilateral. So if you've had it on one side, uh, you have about 30 to 40% chance of it happening on the other side. Many people have pain prior to this. So if you're taking a medicine like Fosamax and you're starting to get thigh pain, it's something you do want to get talk to your doctor about and get checked out and get an x-ray because if it can be caught ahead of time, you can prevent this fracture from happening. Uh, proton pump inhibitors, which again is one of the antacids, which we said is a risk fracture for osteoporosis and low, uh, low calcium, uh, can be problematic as well as uh, taking glucocorticoids such as prednisone medications. So this is the fracture before it happens, and it really looks just like a stress fracture that an athlete gets. And that's basically what happens mechanically. This is a high stress area of the bone because of the angle of the hip. And it basically forms a little bit of a crack. And as I mentioned before, because some of the bone cells are poisoned and don't work right by taking the Fosamax, it basically doesn't allow the bone to remodel in a normal way. The bone is much thicker and much more solid than it would be otherwise, but it still just doesn't work correctly. And so again, we have sort of poor bone quality, deforming forces because of the location of the hip, and then the fracture heals a little bit slower. So these do very well uh, with a fracture. You don't want to treat it non-operatively, just like we mentioned. And these are usually treated with a, with a rod that basically goes through the femur and up into the hip and holds us in place. It allows people to walk immediately, and you're able to treat it very well. One of the things that's very highly recommended is what's called a bisphosphonate holiday. So if you have a fracture, you stop these medications. And they're really, this is still being worked out, but the thought is that if you've been on a medicine like uh, Fosamax for three to five years, you probably should stop. Um, certainly if you have a, um, if, if you've had a recent fracture, if you have uh, you know, very low risk as far as like no other health uh, issues that are very significant. Uh, but if you're a high-risk patient, such as if you have a high turnover bone disease, so some sort of parathyroid or thyroid issue, or you're taking uh, medicines like prednisone, you probably should continue on that life, lifetime. But we're going to hear more about this uh, in the next few years as this happens. So if you do get a fracture like this, um, there's a concept in the management of patients called co-managed care, which has been developed over the last few years. And the idea behind it is to have a very um, robust, efficient system for getting people appropriately treated, very quickly treated, uh, and identified for their management. So at UCSF, we have a program like that, which you've actually just initiated this last year. We're also starting it at San Francisco General Hospital, um, where um, we're able to get people taken care of in a very quick fashion uh, with involvement continuously between internal medicine, geriatrics, orthopedic surgery, and rehabilitation. And what this has shown is, remember I told you earlier in the talk about the very poor results of hip fractures. And the, the, the hospital that did this first in the country was called Highland Hospital in Rochester, New York. It was one of the associated hospitals with the University of Rochester. Treated over 800 patients in four years. And their average age was 85 years. So a very old and a very frail um, uh, population. This Charleston score is basically the number of significant chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, and pulmonary problems, or kidney problems, or things like that, or cancer. And this patient group had a predicted um, mortality of 50%, which was really quite tragic. 
And by having a program such as this that was very quickly getting patients through the hospital and uh, back to care, they've actually demonstrated a decreased mortality of about 20%. Later studies demonstrated that their readmission rate is very low, their hospitalization was down to about half, patients are able to return to their home and not need any sort of cane, walker, or assist in a much, much higher rate. And it's also much less expensive, as you can imagine. You can avoid the problems and avoid the long hospitalization. It's better for the patient, and it's better for the system as well. So we started this here uh, beginning this last uh, January. Uh, we have uh, daily hip fracture rounds with orthopedics, geriatric uh, service, as well as case manager, therapists, and nursing. Uh, we have standard management of all the patients that come through. Uh, bone health labs are done, so we begin that workup for osteoporosis. We make sure that we're staying away from medication that can cause confusion or delirium. Very aggressive at getting uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy, and our goal is actually for people to be home walking within two days after their surgery and three days after their fracture. And then also a big piece of this, too, is making sure the patients get the full, um, full workup and full evaluation to make sure that they stay on track. Thank you very much. I know this is a long talk, but uh, thanks for your patience. Um, so I want to thank you all for coming. Um, I'm a professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and I think it's really important for us as scientists to get out and talk to the public about what we're doing. We present our work in scientific journals, but we never get, we don't get the opportunity enough to come out and talk to people like yourselves who are interested in our work and want to hear about it. Um, so I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to go, in the interest of time, I'm going to cut some of the background information, the numbers and the, the statistics will be on my slide deck, and you can look at the numbers. Um, but I was going to tell you about why I do what I do, and then give you an example of how, as a scientist, we approach a problem to try to stimulate bone fracture healing, in this case, in an elderly population. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about is um, bone fracture healing. So again, these numbers are going to be in the slide deck that I gave you. Uh, why do we study bone healing? Because it's a huge burden of disease. The musculoskeletal injury, the, the most important figure on this slide is right here. 50% of the adult population in the U.S. has a chronic musculoskeletal problem. Um, there are 15 million fractures in the U.S. each year that cost about $45 billion to treat. Um, and that includes also missed uh, wages from missing out on work and uh, also missed time in school. So bones are unique in that they heal really well. They actually regenerate themselves. And unlike most of our other organs in our bodies, um, our bones can completely regenerate and regain their original bone strength. Most bones heal really well, but about 10 to 20% of fractures don't heal normally at all. About 45% of fractures that have a concomitant vascular injury, so when you break a bone and also damage the blood supply, about 50% of those fractures don't heal. And about this is the number that really struck me. So my training is actually in developmental biology. Uh, I have another part of my lab that studies cleft lip and palate and patterning of the skull. So I didn't know. I came to orthopedic surgery kind of late in my career. Um, and this number really struck me, that 51% of patients with a fracture don't return to work within six months. And that number astounded me when we think about, you know, where we hear on the news about cardiovascular disease and everything, we don't really hear so much about what a fracture can do to somebody's quality of life, and that really, really struck me. Um, and then there are some problems that are associated with uh, delays in healing, diabetes, smoking, infection, and what we're going to talk about tonight is aging.
So as Eric already alluded to, uh, there's delays in fracture healing that are observed in uh, older patients, and this is actually not just in elderly patients. Is as we get older, uh, we our bones fail to heal as rapidly. So it's a continual progression over time. And as Eric already talked about, there's increased morbidity and increased mortality in uh, fracture patients as you get increasing as increasing age. So. We think that research is really a key to improving bone fracture healing outcomes and solve some of these problems that are going to increase as the population continues to age. Um, so we want to talk about uh, basic research. We want to have investments in basic research to understand basic biological concepts of bone fracture healing. We want to be able to translate that research into clinical studies that we can then uh, try to apply to patient populations. We want to train surgeons and medical students uh, in, in using these therapies through uh, proper education. And this is just, uh, just a snapshot of the way research is done in, the con- in our country. So the NIH funds a lot of the basic science research in our country. Their budget's about $32 billion. This was from uh, fiscal year 2016, as opposed to industry, which funds about $70 billion worth of research in our country. And the major difference is that the NIH is funding basic research. So this is the molecular biology research. This is the work on Drosophila, the fruit flies that you hear about in the news all the time. This is what they're funding. They're funding basic mechanistic science that we can advance to to, um, improving patient care through clinical trials, which is what industry funds. Basically, industry is funding clinical research to prove safety and efficacy of these treatments that we're sort of developing in our laboratories and then trying to shuttle through this process to get into clinics. This is just something about the NIH, that the majority of money that goes to the NIH is given out to research labs like mine and other labs at UCSF and across the country to do this kind of basic research. Only about 15% actually stays at the NIH to fund intramural research and administrative costs. Um, But really, you know, our goal is to improve outcomes by changing clinical practice. And so the way we can do that is by developing a really good understanding at the bench of the mechanisms that we're trying to understand and then translating that to the bedside through this whole process. And the pipeline kind of looks like this. So we might start with in vitro studies. So these are the classic studies that you think about in a Petri dish, in a test tube, uh, in an incubator, where you're doing something to a cell line. These never translate to clinical practice. You have to exhibit extreme caution when you interpret these studies and think how they may act clinically. But what these studies do is they feed into work in animal models. And so we then, before we go into uh, humans, first in human studies, we would do preclinical research. So we take this in vitro work, we combine it with in vivo animal models to study uh, how this drug or how, how this device may apply to a living organism. Very rarely does this directly translate to uh, clinical practice, but sometimes it might. Um, And the last step, then, is these two, the in vitro and in vivo components, are what the the FDA uses um, to approve the first in-human clinical trial. So they look at this data, safety and efficacy, uh, in in vitro and in in animal studies before they allow it to go into humans. And so these clinical trials are really uh, what evidence-based medicine is based upon. So here, my lab focuses on the preclinical aspects, the in vitro and in vivo components. We don't do a whole lot of clinical trials. We don't get any money. We get very little money from industry. Um, So the overall goals of uh, the research in my lab is to understand the regulation of bone regeneration. We have multiple models of this. And then to use that understanding of the regulation of bone regeneration to develop therapies so we can treat uh, fractures.
this is how we uh, create fractures. So we deeply anesthetize a mouse. We place its tibia across these two pins here. We set this bar on the tibia. And in an incredibly scientific manner, we raise this weight a certain distance. And we drop the weight onto the spring-loaded platform. And we break the tibia by three-point bending. So we're trying to mimic a high-velocity impact that, such as would be sustained in an automobile accident. So we're trying to injure the bone, the muscle, and the blood supply so that we can apply what we think is more of a clinically relevant model to try to understand healing as a whole. Mice are incredibly robust animals. We can put them back in the cage. They wake up in about half an hour. We put them back in the cage, and they run around right away. They heal within about four weeks without us doing anything at all to them. So we don't fix them. We don't... We don't uh, put a cast on them. We don't put a nail in. They just ambulate on that leg, and they'll heal in about four weeks. But we're smarter than mice, and we have ways that we can manipulate bone fracture healing. And so what we can do is put these external fixators on the broken tibia of the mouse. Um, and the mouse, will, again, he'll drag this, or she'll drag this around the cage, and it'll heal in about four weeks. Um, but now this has imposed completely rigid stabilization on this broken bone. I'm going to come back to that in one second. Um, slides, actually, I'm just going to skip ahead. And, and this is what really, really, really got me interested in uh, this kind of biology. <clears throat> because if you leave a fracture completely unstable, the stem cells that are present at the fracture site differentiate into chondrocytes. So chondrocytes make cartilage, not bone. So this red stuff here is all the cartilage that's differentiated, that's formed from the differentiating chondrocytes at the fracture site. This cartilage is going to be replaced by bone through a process called endochondral ossification. And this is the way all of our bones formed when we were embryos. That all of our bones and our limbs and our, skeleton, and our uh, vertebrae and our back and our legs, they started out as cartilage that then turned into bone through this process of endochondral ossification. The cool thing to me was that if you stabilize the fractures with those external devices, the same exact stem cells that differentiated in the chondrocytes here in this animal have differentiated into osteoblasts, and they're making bone directly through a process called intramembranous ossification. And this is the way our skull formed. So our skull has formed in embryos by direct bone formation. The stem cells made osteoblasts and made bone. So I thought this was such a really cool thing that just the changing the mechanical environment could direct these stem cells to adopt completely different fates uh, in this healing. That this is what really drove my interest in, um, in this field from a basic science perspective. I have no idea how it does it. I just think it's really cool. Um, the fact of the matter is, and this is a diagram drawn in 1943 by a man named Marshall Uris. So Marshall Uris was a very famous bone biologist and orthopedic surgeon. He discovered a class of molecules called bone morphogenetic proteins in the 1960s. He's kind of the father of orthopedic surgery research. Um, so I like to use this slide because it's kind of historical. It came from 19, a publication in 1943. But what you can see, this is a, human, a diagram of a human fracture. Uh, here's the bone that's forming here on the outside. It's all this trabecular bone. Here's the cartilage in the middle. And so actually what happens in a fracture is some of this bone forms directly through osteoblast differentiation, sort of here more proximally and distally. So these stem cells are differentiating in osteoblasts here. But at the fracture gap, these cells are differentiating in the chondrocytes and making this cartilage, which is white in this diagram here. And then this cartilage is what's going to be replaced through endochondral ossification during healing. Um, 
And so this is the fracture callus. That's what it's called. I'm going to refer to that because that's just in my jargon that I use all the time. So if I talk about the fracture callus or the size of it, I'm referring to this entire uh, tissue that's formed here. So when I got my job, uh, what had happened is um, I had a collaboration with who, the person who's actually the chief of orthopedics at the Orthopedic Trauma Institute at the General. And he was doing a lot of research at the time, and uh, he had somebody working for him who let a bunch of mice get too old. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do with these old mice? So we thought, well, we should use them. And so we started thinking about if we should look at aging in the role of aging and fracture healing. So what we wanted to first know is could we detect changes in fracture healing in mice that heal so rapidly to begin with? And if we could detect changes, could we actually try to understand what the problems were in these mice and maybe try to correct them? Um, so this is one of the first studies that we had done. Uh, these are, these are uh, histological sections through the, the fractured bone at five days after injury in mice that are four weeks old, six months old, or 18 months old. This pink here in this second column are, the, the pink is just an indication of the number of chondrocytes that have differentiated. So you can see in these young mice, the four-week-old mice, there's tons of chondrocytes differentiating. And as you get older, you see the numbers of chondrocytes differentiating get less and less. This yellow here indicates the chondrocytes that are becoming very mature, and they're going to get replaced by bones. You can see already at five days in a four-week-old mice, there's cartilage that's already turning into bone. And you don't see any of that in the six-month-old or the 18-month-old mice. Similarly, if you look at the regions where the bone is forming directly, you can see in these young mice, so here's this blue here is the, the histological stain for bone. You can see all of this new bone that's formed adjacent to here's the, the, bone, the cortical bone that's present at the site. As opposed to the six-month-old mouse where you see like here's the cortical bone and here's this, this new bone that's forming here. Uh, and the 18-month-old mouse has no new bone formed yet. So yeah, just, just grossly you can look at that and say the young mice are healing faster than the old mice. We have ways to quantify all of these things in the lab, so we can look at different time points. Um, and so here you can see the callus uh, size, the cartilage size, the amount of bone that's present, and then the ratio of bone to the total volume. And I, I'm going to show you the cartilage, but this is true for all of them. If you look at all, three of, all four of these different uh, sets of data, what you can see is the young mice heal much faster, this blue line. So they make cartilage, and the cartilage disappears faster than the middle-aged mice and the elderly mice. And so the rate of healing is right-shifted in these graphs. And so these animals are slowing down over time. Um, and the person I had working on this was an orthopedic surgeon who uh, was doing a, fellowship, a research fellowship in my laboratory. And um, we started to get interested in the possibility that inflammation may be having a role in this process of delaying fracture healing. And um, he knew that uh, one particular molecule called, called interleukin-6 was really a key molecule in predicting outcomes in human polytrauma patients. So for the heck of it, he looked at interleukin-6 levels in the plasma. And in the middle, these are middle-aged mice. So these are 12-month-old mice. mice. The elderly mice are considered about two years old. So these are middle-aged mice, 12 months old, and they have significantly higher levels of interleukin-6 in their plasma than juvenile mice suggesting to us that inflammation, systemic inflammation, was uh, higher in these mice, and we wanted to know um, possibly if this was affecting fracture healing. So around the same time, um, some concepts were coming into the literature. One of them was called inflammaging. So this is a concept that was actually uh, championed out at the Buck Institute in Marin. Um, and you'll notice that the top molecule here is interleukin-6. So it's a driver of inflammaging. And so what this is, is as we get older, all of us get older, we have an increasingly infl pro-inflammatory environment in our bodies. 
And inflammation has been associated with uh, multiple different disease processes, the ones shown here. And our question was, you know, is inflammation affecting fracture healing in these mice? So we had a hypothesis that if we could rejuvenate the immune system somehow, we could stimulate repair in the old mice. And so we came up with this experiment. So we took old mice and we lethally irradiated them. So we gave them a dose of radiation that killed their bone marrow. So they would die uh, because of opportunistic infections. So what we could do is rescue those mice, prevent their death by transplanting bone marrow. And what we did is we transplanted young bone marrow into elderly mice. And as a control, we transplanted elderly bone marrow into elderly mice. And then we asked the same question, what was the rate of healing? So these are chimeric animals. So these are animals that are derived from two different populations of cells, a host cell type and a donor cell type. And we thought it was probably really important to distinguish the host and the donor cells to see what the donor cells were giving rise to at the fracture site. So what we did uh, for the bone marrow transplant, we transplanted in bone marrow from mice that expressed an enzyme that we could measure, we could monitor. And the mouse doesn't matter what the name is, it's called a Rosa 26. But basically, the tissue from a Rosa 26 mouse turns blue when you put it in a certain solution. Um, And the tissue from the wild-type mouse that doesn't express the enzyme doesn't turn blue. So you can see all of the Rosa, this is the positive control up here, this is muscle, for example, or cartilage. All of these cells are blue because they're expressing this enzyme. When we look in these bone marrow chimeras, you can see that there's, this is the cortical bone. You can see it's derived from the host. There's no blue cells. This is the bone marrow here. There's blue cells in the bone marrow. The cells that differentiated in the chondrocytes are from the, don't, from the host, so they're not blue. The new bone is blue. Really importantly, when we stain for macrophages and neutrophils, two different inflammatory cell types, they were derived from the donor bone marrow. So they're brown from uh, telling us that they're macrophage in this case and blue telling us they're from the donor. So basically, we had to prove that we transferred just the, the inflammatory system into these mice and no other stem cells that could give rise to the bone or cartilage that would have been younger. And then when we measured... Uh, when we measured the different outcome parameters, we saw that um, the animals that received the juvenile bone marrow, so shown here in this purple or ready purple, uh, had an increased size of the callus, which remodeled quicker. So it was larger earlier and smaller at later time points, indicating that we're left shifted on that curve. It's healing faster. The same was true with bone. So bone was much higher at day 7 and much less at day 28, again, indicating that the bone formation was left shifted on the curve and cartilage as well. So what you can't see down here is all of the animals that received the elderly bone marrow still had cartilage present at day 28. All of the juvenile animals had no cartilage present at day 28. So this told us that by rejuvenating the inflammatory system in this manner, we could stimulate bone fracture healing in these mice. So we wanted to understand how we affected the inflammatory system. I can tell you we saw no differences in the numbers of the different inflammatory cell types that were present at the fracture site. But we were really happy to see that we restored interleukin-6 levels here down to uh, juvenile levels uh, by transplanting in the juvenile bone marrow. So we restored that one inflammaging marker, interleukin-6, back to a juvenile level with this experiment. Um, so that's great. I mean, it's a really cool outcome for us to do. You know, as a scientist, and you publish a paper like that, it's really interesting. Uh, provides a lot of opportunity for ex- exploration. What we really wanted to understand is what was going on if we could actually identify a cell type or a target that we could actually try to find a drug for, so we could actually treat animals in a way that would be clinically relevant. So the immune system is incredibly complex. Um, 
But it turns out one of the molecules that's sort of uh, deranged in, as we get older and contributes to inflammation is this macrophage here. And so we thought, well, if we could somehow target a macrophage, maybe that would help us stimulate healing. And in fact, um, the whole field of inflammation has sort of transformed into macrophaging. So a lot of people believe that the actual deleterious effects of inflammation are due to uh, inappropriate activity of macrophages. So macrophages are cells that sort of respond to the initial bacterial infection, if you have a bacterial infection, or the initial injury. These are cells that go and eat up all the dead tissue that's present at the site of injury. So they're phagocytes. They phagocytose materials. And they recruit the other cell types that then come and um, produce the inflammatory response along with the macrophages. And so macrophages have a dark side and a good side. The dark side is this really pro-inflammatory state that a macrophage sets up at the initial response to an injury. So it becomes incredibly pro-inflammatory. This is what recruits all the other immune cells to to the injury site. After some time, the macrophage has to know to resolve the inflammation and then switch to the sort of the good side and start to produce molecules that stimulate, bone, or stimulate healing in any situation. And so we think there's a disruption in this polarization of, this macrofa- of these macrophages as, people get, as animals and people get older that may contribute to this inflammation process. Uh, here's just some examples of... Uh, Aging diabetes can maintain these cells as pro-inflammatory, and uh, stem cells uh, can can make these macrophages become more uh, of the good stem, uh, the good macrophage type. So I want to just take a step back for a second because I thought, you know, in the popular press and on the news, people are inundated with new technologies and science, and I thought I would just take an opportunity to, to explain one to you that you might hear about in the news. Um, so what we wanted to know in these, if we could detect differences between the young and the old macrophages. And so um, if you think about uh, the way information flows within a cell, our nucleus contains the DNA. The DNA is comprised of all of our genes. The DNA is then transcribed into RNA in the nucleus. The RNA then gets exported to the cytoplasm, gets turned into protein, and the protein is what actually does all the work of our genes. And it turns out that the major site of regulation of genes is the transcription of DNA into RNA. So if we want to know if something is wrong with a cell type, a macrophage, for example, we might want to look at the RNA that these cells are producing to see if these are aberrant cells. And so what we can do is we can collect all of the RNA from macrophages of young and old animals, and we can just sequence the RNA and say, what gene is this particular RNA molecule from? And then we can count the number of each of those molecules and say, wow, this gene has tenfold higher expression in this cell type than it does in that cell type. And so a lot of the things that we hear about on the news are functional genomics or transcript- transcriptomics or RNA sequencing, microarray or deep sequencing. That's what this is referring to, looking at gene expression profiles of individual cell types. And we see this a lot in the news about different types of cancers, for example. But we did this with macrophages that we isolated from young and old mice. And here's what the data kind of look like. So each column is an animal, and each row is a gene. And I think what you can see, pretty cl- it's a heat map. So the red genes are expressed at much lower levels than the green genes. And so it's just telling you, going across those animals, if an animal has a red bar, that means in that animal, that gene's a lot higher than in the other animals. And what you can see is for the young animals, the changes in gene expression across these five animals is virtually non-existent. These are really homogeneous gene expression profiles. 
But if you look at these old animals, you can see that there's, this one's different than these young animals. These genes are different than even these other old animals. And so there starts to be a lot of variation in the gene expression patterns that we start to see in these animals as you get older, as they get older. Uh, we have no idea what this means. Um, there's a lot of information in this kind of data that we're working through. But it's just an example of how we can use sort of current technology to understand or ask questions about biology. And something I thought that, you know, it's in the news all the time. And so if you haven't heard about this before, it might be interesting for you to hear about. Okay, so the macrophages are different in these old animals. Can we target them for, as a therapy? So it turns out that um, living in the Bay Area is fantastic because there's all these biotech companies around that have lots of uh, molecules that they want to share with us. Um, and so we know that macrophages are born in the bone marrow through, and we know the molecular regulation of macrophage birth, and we know that it involves binding of this colony-stimulating factor to its receptor called CFIMS, and this kicks off the whole process. So my boss, the chief at the general, was riding to the airport, and he was talking to me on the phone about this project, and sitting next to him was the president of Plexicon, which is in East, in East Bay, and she heard the conversation and said, we have an inhibitor that can block macrophage activation. Do you want to try it? So we got this inhibitor from them. Uh, Plexicon's in Berkeley. The inhibitor is this, PLX3397. It's a small molecule. Uh, we can feed it to the mice in the food. And what it does is it blocks the ability of CSF1 to bind the CFIMS receptor and essentially shut off this macrophage differentiation process. Um, and so we fed the mice, the old mice, these, uh, this inhibitor. And what you can see is it kind of starts to mimic what we see with the bone marrow transplantation. So we start to see the black bars here are the plexicon-treated animals. So there's more bone. There's more bone later at day 21. Um, the cartilage is higher, and it's going away quicker. And the percent bone to cartilage is higher in these treated animals compared to the controls. And so we think we have a way that we could potentially start to think about treating patients, or at least advancing some of this research to the clinic. Um, one of the really interesting things about this is that if you treat young animals with a plexicon drug, they actually heal worse. And so what we think is that the macrophages get bad as they get older, and it's better to have no macrophages there than to have bad macrophages there. Okay, and so with that, um, I tried to kind of tell you the story that we've been working on for about 15 years, and I just kind of hit a few of the highlights. There's a lot more details, obviously, to fill in, but certainly we know aging impairs bone fracture healing. We can model this in uh, small animals, which are really nice for us to use for a variety of reasons. That inflammation is certainly dysregulated in these animals, and that this may be a therapeutic target using some of these small molecule inhibitors of these macrophages. And so we're working on trying to figure out a way that we can actually translate this to patient care, but it's a long process. Um, so with that, I'm happy to take questions or maybe invite Eric back up here and we can both answer questions for you guys. Or... Any questions? Yeah. My doctors told me that, that uh, calcium, uh, taking calcium is no longer good for you because it relates to heart problems. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big dilemma now, too. So also, I'm not so sure that the vitamin D is guaranteed due to what it used to be. I mean, and lying in the sun is great, but then you get skin cancer. <laughs> and, and I Pick your poison, you, right? Yeah. And he was pointing, my doctor was pointing more to these drugs, 
And every person I know that took those drugs had huge problems. One had a, her, in fact, her teeth have never been quite set. She took Fosamax. Right. So I don't even know why they recommend Fosamax anymore. Well, I, I mean, and, and the calcium thing makes me, because you were recommending it sort of, and I'm wondering what's the deal. <laughs> There's there's lots of back and forth, and I think that the over you can like anything you know ketchup causes heart disease, wine doesn't you know protects all these things. If you look at single studies, um, there's a lot of conflicting information, but generally speaking, there's a consensus that this is a significant problem. I think that the use of calcium and vitamin D generally is safe. Um, the concern regarding cardiac disease is is basically that uh, like atherosclerotic plaques can build up, but there's really not a strong association between those plaques actually forming and the dosing of calcium and vitamin D. So I think it's one of those things where if you have osteoporosis, but you don't have significant heart disease, it's safe to take. If you have had multiple stents, if you've had a bad family history of heart disease, then, then that's something you should look at very carefully. Regarding bisphosphonates such as Fosamax and things like that, I go back to my slide that basically showed that there is a still about a 10 to 100 fold increase in fracture risk not taking it um, compared to actually uh, taking it and having the risk of this fracture. We're still sorting out that drug. Probably the recommendation is to start that drug, take it for three to five years, and then take a break. And how long that break should be is, is quite variable. I was, I was fine until I went off hormone, hormone replacement right. therapy. And in hormone replacement therapy sounds just about as safe as some of these drugs they're offering here. Yes. That is definitely true. There's no magic, magic thing. I, I personally feel that... Calcium and vitamin D, your body can regulate that. It can regulate the uptake of it as long as you're not taking an inordinate amount of it. And every six months or so, you're, you're checking your serum levels, you're checking your DEXA scan to make sure that you're getting what you need but not much. Your body takes what it needs and it, it rids the rest of it. Some of these pharmacologic you know, medications, one of the problems with Fosamax is that it has such a long half-life that it basically poisons the bone for probably the rest of your life. And how long that lasts, what the long-term effects, you mentioned uh, probably what is the osteonecrosis problem of the jaw, which is another bony problem, your friend that had the teeth issue. That gets a little bit more dangerous. I, I feel you know, that you know, a physiologic, to get you back up to physiologic normal dosage or something is probably a very safe route to go because your body has mechanisms, methods to, to be able to regulate that. Yes, sir. Um, you had a, a slide about exercise modification. Yes. And was that for people with osteoporosis? Yes. Yeah. So not any particular age. Not any particular age. And I think the general the general consensus is exercise is good. And and truly, you know, there's a lot of very good basic research that basically shows that loading bones in a weight-bearing environment and even vibrations and things like that is actually very good for stimulating bone growth and development. So whether you're 20 years old or you're 80 years old, do it. I'm a massive advocate of exercise. Now, certainly if you have feet problems, back problems, knee or hip problems, you need to account for that. But weight-bearing exercise for muscle strength, for the bone um, 
uh, bone density and bone strength is incredibly useful at, at any phase through life. Uh, Last you, question. I think we just got a couple uh, of seconds. Yeah. Did Did you say that uh, you, you shouldn't lift weights over your head? Right. You shouldn't do it in any case. It, it, it's not that. It's, so, so the concern is that if you have osteoporosis, and that the the worry is, especially like heavy weights, is that you're creating a, a fulcrum, you're creating a significant lever arm, that if you have the risk of a vertebral compression fracture, that you're really putting a very large load on your back, and you can increase the risk of a further injury. And sit-ups too. So, so you recommend people staying away from those staying things. Staying away from sit-ups and lifting yeah. for everyone. I think if you have a diagnosis of osteoporosis, it's probably best to stay away from that. I think if you don't, it certainly is. If you can do it, it's fine. The thing that I always recommend doing is really with any of these things, you know, a vertebral compression fracture is not going to happen silently. And when exercising, really listen to your body, get a good sense of how much is enough how much is feeling okay, and you don't want to push yourself too much in any given sense. One of the things I thought was probably most important in that slide was the was sort of the weight limits. Generally speaking, you want to do high repetition, low weight, rather than large weights. And if you're doing five-pound dumbbells, you're really not doing much. You're not creating a big fulcrum. But if you're trying to like lift a, a you know big bar um, and and smash it out like a 25-year-old is that's doing in the gym next to you, that's probably not doing more damage than it is doing good. On that same exercise slide, what was the point about extensions? Good, bad? Um, hyperextension of the back. Uh, the concern with that was that that's also so they could be bad, bad to do also. Yeah. Leg extensions. Leg extensions are absolutely fine to do. Yeah. So if someone has a hip replacement, yes. and they fall, really hurt themselves. Does that all come apart? Stay tuned. I think that's a future topic. <laughs> yes, uh, it can. So you, you, you can run into what's called a periprosthetic fracture. And especially in the osteoporotic bone, but you have this big metal pipe that's inside your bone that's very strong and incredibly hard and stiff. And then all of a sudden, very soft bone. You can actually get a crack in that area. Now... What's not known, are you more likely to fracture with one of these implants in? Probably not. It does create a significant uh, specific uh, fracture pattern, and it can be a challenge to treat because we have to work now around this, this hip replacement or this knee replacement or something like that. They tend to be very simple fracture patterns to fix, but we have to you know, still, still deal with it. But there is a concern about that. There is because there's millions of people, not literally, that have hip and knee replacements in. Is something that we are seeing and dealing with on a much more common basis. Happy to answer any further questions up here for the next few minutes. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.